Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It's it's an emerging experience, and as yeah. such, you know we don't we don't go from you know zero to sixty. None of us goes from zero to sixty. People. Keep thinking about like dropping into flow. Like that's not happening. Flow is the merchant. <laughs> We've got happening. to build up the context. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Unlikely collaborators, the only way forward is inward. Later on in this episode, I'll talk a lot more about the Perception Box and how it relates to this episode. But right now, let me tell you about today's guest. Today, we welcome Oren Davis to the podcast. Oren earned the first doctorate in positive psychology and is a self-actualization engineer who enables people to do and be their best. As the principal investigator of the Quality of Life Laboratory, he conducts research on flow, creativity, hypnosis, and mentoring. Dr. Davis consults for companies from startups to multinationals on hiring strategies, culture, innovation, and employee well-being. He's the author of Team Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Collaboration. In this episode, I talked to Oren Davis about the new science of flow. A lot of people are familiar with the concept of flow, but according to Oren, the experience of it is not very common. We discuss Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work and how Oren is expanding the research of flow by studying it at a group level. He talks about how we can increase the chances of experiencing flow for both individuals and teams. We also touch on the topics of microflow, hypnosis, absorption, positive psychology, and of course, my favorite, self-actualization. It was really great fun chatting with Oren. I've known him for quite some time, and the field of psychology, for some reason, doesn't have a lot of research on the science of flow. So it's really cool to see Oren doing a lot of really important research on this topic, and hopefully this chat will inspire other researchers to do more research on this really important aspect of human consciousness as well. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Oren Davis. Oren, so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Good times. Yeah, very good times. We haven't even started yet, but I'm sure it'll be good times. You know, I have uh, watched your career with all. As you know, I, I first met you when you were a grad student of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's at uh, APA way back in like 2006. What were you working on back then? What was your uh, the t- what was the topic of your dissertation? So I think it was oh, I think it was oh nine we met. Um, okay. Okay. At APA, uh, still a long time ago. NYU. Yeah, yeah. I was working on microflow at the time, and I think I was starting to get interested in create. I was working on uh, creativity. I was working on mentoring. That was all related to Mike's work um, and Gene's also, because I, I, I mean, Mike was my official advisor, but I also was very much like mentored by Gene Nakamura as well. Yeah. You. So you studied with the legend of flow. And yeah. uh, have carried on that torch in uh, in really big ways. Can you describe to our listeners a little bit about uh, what is the flow experience? Sure. So, have you ever 
gotten really engrossed in something that is kind of difficult, that is challenging. It really inspires you to push forward on it. You love just engaging in the act itself. Like whatever the activity is, you're really raring to do it. And when you look back on it afterwards, it feels like this absolute amazing experience. Like you were totally zoomed in on it and it felt like you were executing it to the best of your ability. And that amazing experience is basically flow in a nutshell. It's a, uh, it's considered a peak experience. Yes. One of the peak experiences. Yeah. yeah. I, I, some a. people think it is the peak experience. Uh-huh. I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure that all, like not all peak experiences are flow and not all yeah. flow is peak experience, but. I agree with that. I very much agree with that. And then what do you think of uh, his criteria that he put forth in his book, uh, Mihai, uh, in his book on flow, he, he put forth various criteria for how, how's that stood up uh, scientifically over the years? Hard to say, because I'll say something funny is that whenever you read Mike's work, it really is only sort of a snapshot of where his mind was at the time. And he's usually light years ahead of whatever piece just came out. So I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about back when I was a grad student was whether flow actually has the nine characteristics that he said. And the funny thing is, I was uh, sort of looking at the nine characteristics and trying to figure out how they go together. And he said to me, or you're being too dogmatic about the theory. And I said, wait a minute, it's your theory. And he, and he said, exactly. So I'm telling you, like, don't be so dogmatic about the theory. And he was always like that. And just advising me not to really, you know, hold too tightly to anything, any idea that there's nothing sacred that cannot be questioned in the world, in the realm of ideas. And it was a lot of fun actually studying with him and, and questioning everything, including his work and his ideas. And he encouraged me to do it. So the the nine characteristics of flow, they nominally hold up, but most of it's been top-down models. So it's sort of been like, well, we know that there's this experience, so what can we derive and what kind of patterns can we see? But it's hard to find empirical underpinnings for that. And uh, actually, a model that I just presented uh, suggests that maybe it's not really nine characteristics, but really that more than anything else, I think that the feedback aspect is important. And the autotelic aspect is important. And then the trance state that is the necessary but not sufficient uh, aspect of flow that usually leads people to think of it as a, as a state of flow, that flow is actually some kind of state. Mm. It's not. There's something more than that. But the trance-like aspect of flow is kind of really where people see that state part of it. And then there's you know the feedback loops of the activity, the experience structuring aspects of the activity built on top of it as well as the intrinsic motivation, the autotelic nature that makes the activity so enjoyable that you want to just engage in the activity for its own sake. You know, like, for example, I like to play chess and, you know, I play, I play to play. I want to play a good game. You know, win, I obviously play to win, but, you know, win or lose, if I played a good game, and especially if it was a hard game, you know, it feels great afterwards. Yeah, the, the trance aspect is really interesting, especially in light of your other research program on hypnosis. I do want to know what the latest state of the science is on hypnosis. How do those two things overlap? Can you hypnotize someone to get into the flow state? Well, since flow is not a state, no. Oh, that's <laughs> that's a very good point. Uh, wait, if it's not a state of consciousness, then what is it? So what I would say is that it's something more than a state of consciousness. Because one of the things that we have not been able to do is actually differentiate between the different experiences of trance, right? There's this, there is this deep absorption that we have in so many different contexts, right? We have it in mindfulness. We have it in meditation. We also do have it without necessarily a flow experience, just being really, really focused and intent on something, but without, let's say the intrinsic motivation or without something that is, that really rewards us so that we feel is necessarily a good use of time. So across all those things, there might still be trance states, but not necessarily a, an, a greater experience, this, this gestalt, this overarching experience that is greater than the sum of its parts. We have, you know, the trance experience. We have a challenging activity that we're very into, that we, you know, are doing for its own sake. All that is something over and above the trance-like experience that happens. So, you know, one of the things that we can do is we can certainly help people to experience trance more readily. Although I would point out that trance is, you know, very much an everyday phenomenon. We get tranced out by TV. We get tranced out by books. We get tranced out in conversations. So this happens all the time. 
uh, one of the funny things is a bit of a debate in the hypnosis community is whether hypnosis actually requires a trance or whether it is enough to make, you know, a committed social contract. And how would we differentiate between those? Now, some of the neuroscience research is starting to suggest that there is a unique brain state that occurs during hypnosis, but differentiating, you know, the hypnosis brain state from the mindfulness brain state from the flow brain yes. state, assuming we could yes. even find one. We're yeah. way away from getting to that. Well, let's talk about the science, the neuroscience of flow. Some people say that we have it all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Uh, but um, no, but let's let's talk about this for a second because I've seen some interesting research on, and it maybe not necessarily flow, but it's certainly uh, related on uh, jazz improvisers and. Mm-hmm poets when they're really improvising and and engaging in a spontaneous fashion. And you see a default mode brain network activity. You see a little bit of a reduction of uh, activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, you know. So it does sort of suggest, uh, Mihai was on to something. Uh, in the sense that when you're in a f- in the flow, and I'm I'm scared to use the word state, but when you're when you're in flow experience, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I like that, I like that, yeah, yeah. When you're in the flow experience, I like that a lot actually. When you're in the flow experience, you do tend to have less self-critical thoughts. There tends to be less of a like a second-order metacognitive looking down. But the nuance there is that. Clearly, that depends on the activity, right, and what you're engaging in the flow. And, and but I do think that neuroscience is interesting. What what are your what are some of your thoughts on it? I think we're certainly on to something, particularly the work on the default mode network and the work on yes. executive function in the DLPFC. Yes, I think we're on to something. But I think that the just the technology that we have and the information we have about the brain is way too nascent. I, I mean, it's going to be very exciting, but I think we're a long way away from solving this one solving the whole puzzle yeah yeah i saw some really interesting research on uh the flow flow as a trait compared to other traits and uh, i noticed there was a very very uh low to non-existing correlation with iq that was very interesting to me because it suggests that regardless of your intelligence uh, i'm putting it in quotes right now that word (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah you know you can it doesn't really predict the extent to which you're going to get in the flow state in your activities. And I think that's interesting. I think that's absolutely right. I think especially, you know, looking at the cross-cultural research on flow, we find that, you know, having flow experiences is possible almost anywhere. It's cross-culturally valid. We see it, you know, regardless of socioeconomic status. And there's no reason to believe, like when you look at the characteristics of a flow experience, right, a, a clear goal that you know whether you're achieving correctly, intrinsic motivation, something that's challenging that really drives you to do your best, and probably some kind of trance-like aspect. I'm not sure what you need intelligence for, for any of that. (laughs) Great point. Really great point. You know, there's flow at the individual level. Um, There's also flow at the uh, group level. You've done some uh, really seminal work on team flow. In fact, the title of your book is Team Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Collaboration. Maybe I should just ask you straight up, how do you define team flow? So I've had the pleasure of working with Chef Fontenhout on this. And uh, I, I sort of joke, he's the captain, I'm the co-pilot. Uh, we were both independently working on this. And then Csikszentmihalyi figured that out and introduced us. And the way we came to a definition of team flow is that really it's a group level experience that is comprised in part of individual experiences of flow while involved that that is derived from the team and the team's dynamic. So it's not just that the individuals all experience flow, but they experience flow as part of the team dynamic, deriving their flow experience from the activities related to the team, the team's dynamic. And then the team gets also this overarching aspect of flow and an incredible group level experience that also matches stuff that, you know, other researchers like Keith Sawyer pointed out. Maybe that is related to uh, group jazz improvisation. We think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And absolutely. You're right. Keith Sawyer's great, great work on group creativity. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I I highly recommend uh, his book as well. Group creativity. Well, I enjoyed uh, reading this book of yours in in preparation for this interview. I like how you take a multi-level perspective and I like how you bridge individual flow and team flow. Are the two naturally uh, bridged? Surely there are moments where uh, 
when the, when the group is in flow, is that always the, are all the individuals in flow as well necessarily? So it's a great question, and we haven't proven it one way or the other, mm. but that's definitely our theory. Our theory is that the only way for the group to have a flow experience is for each of the individuals to be experiencing it also, and again, as related to the team dynamic. Nice, nice. I've noticed that you discussed the characteristics of team flow. Can you uh, let our listeners know a little bit about, uh, about I, I counted four <laughs> that you mentioned. Can you describe a little bit those characteristics? Sure. I mean, there's a whole bunch, and most of them are analogs of the individual flow characteristics. But one of the main things that becomes very important as you're trying to go from individual flow to team flow is the collective ambition. So it's really aligning your goals, the team's goals, making sure that everybody's on the same page, everybody knows what they need to do, everybody knows you know, why that's important, why it's important to them, why it's important to the team, and everybody's really you know, bought into that. And a lot of the other things then just build from there, um, you know, division of labor, making sure that people are doing things that are you know, challenging for them, that fit their skills, that they're able to really engage in, you know, autotelically, that they're really willing, and autotelically here, like they're willing to do the activity for its own sake. It's something that means something to them. And if it's something that's more of a grind and, you know, there's lots of work, especially in the workplace, we have to worry about the grind. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that is a grind, but it's, do we see the grind as worthwhile? Do we see the grind as meaningful? And do we see the grind mm -hmm. as contributing to the opportunity to do things or at least get results that we love or that are meaningful to us or that we're intrinsically motivated to get? Yeah. And that's what uh, autotelic means, right? Autotelic. Mm -hmm. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Today's conversation with Oren really illustrates the importance of expanding the walls of our Perception Box. The Perception Box is the invisible mental box that we all live inside, and it can seriously hinder our ability to understand one another and to understand ourselves. In this episode, Oren describes the latest science of the flow experience, that trance-like state where you are completely absorbed in whatever you are doing and your self-critical thinking tends to disappear, at least temporarily. According to the Perception Box perspective, we are all affected by the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what's possible, but the self is just a story. And when we are extremely self-focused and feeling anxiety, we may be focusing a bit too much on our own limiting beliefs or stories that are telling us how to navigate in this world. Expanding our perception box allows for a deeper presence with whatever is coming and going and allows us to focus non-judgmentally on the task at hand, making the flow experience much more likely. To find out more about Unlikely Collaborators and the Perception Box, go to unlikelycollaborators.com. Is that true that uh, Mihai's uh, original book title uh, wasn't Flow, but it was the autotelic personality or something? And then his publisher was like, I think Flow is better. <laughs> so I hear, I actually, he and I never discussed that one, so I actually don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. You don't know everything about your mentor. Well, I, you, I, I was hoping you were going to mention some of these characteristics of Team Flow because I like them. And I think they are not exactly the same as individual flow. Some of them don't even make sense in the context of individual flow. So a sense of unity, sense of joint progress, mutual trust, mutual, I love that one, love that one. And I also really love this one, holistic focus. So a holistic focus, how, how often in a group are all the members of the group deeply, deeply attuned to each other and, and what's going on? I mean, it, it, it seems like that was that's quite beautiful when that can happen, right? We definitely found so, yes. And the, most of those turn out to be much more emergent. So yeah. they come out later. And uh, as we build up on the collective ambition, the high skill integration and things along those lines, that's when we start to get the sense of unity, the joint progress, the mutual trust, and that holistic focus. And those come later. And that's part of what makes the team flow experience so profound and so mm. beautiful. And it's you you really feel deeply connected with everybody. It's it's an unbelievable experience. And I something I something I hope everybody gets to have a, a few times uh, at least. Yeah, me too. Uh, the idea of team flow obviously can also apply to uh, music venues, theater venues where people, the whole audience 
is in group four, right? Uh, have you looked at that? I know, I know uh, Keith Sawyer has, and uh, just wondering, have you thought about that? We haven't looked at that as much. Most of what we've been doing is work teams and sports teams. Okay, good. That's still a wide swath. That's still a <laughs> wide swath. Well, what are some uh, surprising findings you found from those two populations? I think the biggest thing was partly the extent to which an individual has so much influence. Hmm. I didn't. I, I did wow. think that you Our know the, the individual yeah. could influence the team. But I think I, I think when I when I first made my guesses as to how team flow was going to play out, I think I underestimated the extent to which you know having every single person bought in, and you know that maybe some people could hold back a little bit, and we you know we'd still be able to compensate as a team. We found you really can't do that. Like you've got you, everybody's really got to be all in, and if they're not, it's going to compromise the experience, not just for the individual, which is the other thing we we didn't catch. At least I didn't. But for everybody, that if you don't go all in, you're not going to have the good experience either. Yeah. And yeah. some people, like you know, you think like, okay, I can do what I need to do, and I get a decent experience, and it'll be fine. But if you want the flow experience, you got to go all in, and that's true for individual flow, but it's also true on the team flow. That so, you know, you can do your best, but you have to do your best and be all in. Wow. And does that not necessarily apply in the individual flow level? We do find it mostly at the individual flow level because, once again, you've got to be all in. But the real question was, would that multiply to the team? And, and if you're part of a team and, you know, you're doing your best, but you're not necessarily all in or you're, you know, not as committed as, you know, you're not 100% committed. You know, maybe you're just reasonably committed. And you figure this will get it together. This should make things work. Not so much. What is a surprising finding within the individual flow like I want, I'm gonna. I'm thinking about labeling this this discussion today the the, the latest science of flow or something like of the flow experience or something like that. So really, you know, you're the leader in this field. I mean, studying it scientifically. Can you educate our audience? You're the professor right now. Sure. I'm giving you the mic. <laughs> sure. So I think I'm gonna start with. I think the most surprising thing is that it's rare. Hmm. We'd like to think that a flow experience, something like this, we, we think we have it all the time. We actually don't. And I, I've been finding more and more as I look into the science of flow that it's rare and it's actually very hard to get. And I, I mean, you know, even, even when you know what it is and you know what it's about, it's rare and it's hard to get to because often we don't have the energy for it. And we're often not in the mood. And I think, you know, the, the thing that was the most surprising for me throughout all my research was the extent to which this is really context dependent and it's your energy level and mood that really get into this because wow. very often we, we want a flow experience, but we're, we're too tired. We're not able to put forth the effort. And in some cases, even when the activity is autotelic, you know, it's something that we love to do and we do it for its own sake, and we're driven to do it, but we're still too tired. It's such a good point. What are some things, some specific tips to help people increase the flow state? So that's one, is not being tired. Mm -hmm. yeah. What are some others that research shows? So I think the other thing is to check your mood and find out are what are you in the mood for, first of all, but second of all, like the energy level management is a big thing. It's not just whether you're tired. But it's also setting the challenge level for you and setting the skill level that you're willing to apply and then creating a goal that fits with your mood and your energy level and, and making sure that there are feedback loops that aren't going to drain you and that are actually going to energize you. As I said, hmm. I think that you know, a big surprise for me is the extent to which setting up the right feedback loops is critical. And that seems to be making more of a difference in flow experiences I find than almost anything else. Because if you've got the right goal, you've got the right you know, challenge level, you're applying the right skill level, you've got the energy to do it. But one of the things that'll keep you going is if you get feedback, something that basically cheers you on in a sense, or moves you forward and says, come on, you're getting there. Come on, you're getting there. And if you can set that up in a way that will actually energize you, or at least is appropriate to your energy level and won't demand more of you than you think you got, that might get you moving toward a flow experience very effectively. That makes a lot of sense. I find that it takes—I uh, have to get—it takes me some revving up 
before I get in the full, full experience. Like if I go running, it takes, you know, maybe like 15 minutes. Uh, if I'm writing, it'll take, you know, some time for me of effortful work. It, it, it almost seems like I need to have effortful work first to kind of rev it up. Um, and then, and then it's like sleep. It just like clicks in. Uh, you didn't, you couldn't force it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an emerging experience. And as yeah. such, you know, we don't, we don't go from, you know, zero to 60. None of us goes from zero to 60. People keep thinking about like dropping into flow. Like that's not happening. Flow is emerging. <laughs> You've got to build up the context. <laughs> yeah. 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 Forget about it. Do you, do you roll your eyes when you see sometimes seeing the popular media, like the 10 hacks to get into flow or like, you know, like, do you see, do you ever see things in the popular media about flow that like, uh, that, that, that you feel like aren't scientifically sound? All the time and guilty as charged. I, I, I admit to all those eye rolls. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but I, yes, I do. Well, and you're a science, you're, worries- you're a scientist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What worries me about it is that people is that these things cheapen the flow experience and they try to democratize it down to a level that makes people unaware of how deep and how profound the flow experience is. And I think that people then experience, you know, lower levels of, let's say, trance or mindfulness in an enjoyable activity and then think that they've gotten that flow experience. And then they, you know, by thinking that they have that, they miss out on what's actually greater. They miss out on, you know, experiencing an activity that they're very deeply driven to do where, you know, there is this merging of action and awareness where everything that's going on is directly related to that activity. And you're really locked in on this one thing. It is pushing you to your limit and you are, you are sweating, you are grunting, you are, putting forth more effort maybe than you even knew was possible. And for the record, in the moment, it's actually probably not a pleasant experience. You know, when you're, when you're putting forth your strongest efforts and your greatest efforts, this isn't fun. Mm. And yet, because you're driven to do the activity and because you've got feedback loops that are cheering you on, and then you work your way through the activity and you achieve something that is meaningful to you within the activity. It doesn't even have to be like a win per se. Or, or even like, you know, if you're climbing, even to get to the top necessarily, but to have pushed yourself to your limits and beyond, you know, in this, in this trance state, when you're driven to do it and you've got the feedback, it is an unbelievable, it's an ineffable experience. <laughs> yeah, and what I don't like about a lot of this pop science is that it brings the ineffable down to this, you know, very quotidian level. And that worries me. I don't want, I don't want people to have that because I do believe, you know, as we, as we discussed, everyone's capable of experiencing flow and even experiencing flow with some frequency. And I think that for all of us to have the ineffable and to have a taste of the ineffable, you know, more often, even if it's not as often as you'd have, you know, using these quotidian hacks, I think that to the extent to which we could have it, that would still be greater than having something lower level more frequently. I need to process that. You know, Maslow made the distinction between the peak experience and the plateau experience. That sounds like maybe that's a similar distinction to what you're making. Maslow described the plateau experience as like lounging in heaven, not but not getting so excited about it, um, and uh, being able to sustain it more during the course of your day than the the one-off sort of grandiose moment. I don't know if you resonate with this at all, but it sort of seems like that's what you're saying to a certain degree. I'd say as usual, Maslow nailed it. Yes, I thought you were going to say, as usual, you nailed it, Scott. <laughs> but, yeah, then he said, well, Maslow. you did, but you did, you did by calling out the. By calling I know. Out the I'm joking. I'm teasing. Yeah. I'm teasing. I thought that's where you're going with that, but yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Absolutely right. Um, that's why we're uh, we're we're both great admirers of Maslow. I assume you're an yes. admirer of Maslow, and and I think Mihai or Mike would call Mike was a great admirer of Maslow as well, right? Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Did he, he ever, definitely uh, encourage me to read a lot of it? Oh, good. Good. So you, you and him had a, a chat about Maslow. You know, we're going to dedicate this episode to his memory. I hope you're okay with that dedication. Yeah. May he rest in peace. I am very remiss. I never got a chance to have him on my podcast. Uh, in a lot of ways, you're his voice right here. So please let me know if there's anything in particular that uh, that I'm missing. Um, anything that you that you think he would want to, uh, to say about flow, about himself. Uh, whatever, you know, please, this is, this is your time. 
So I think that one of the things that he would say, uh, I think Mike would say that flow experiences are something for everyone. Mm, and yeah, that, like that even though it is this ineffable thing and it's an ineffable, it's this incredible experience, this, uh, you know, astronomically wonderful thing, it's for everybody and mm. everyone should have access to it. And that, that was something that Mike was always about in general was that everyone should have access to the good things. And he wanted to find ways to ensure that everyone had access to the good things and even to the great things and to all the best that life has to offer. And he, he always he always seemed to argue and contend that, you know, we try to put some of these things out of reach for people. And that's that's not really ethical. The rather we should make sure that everyone wow. can have these greatest things because they're all in the mind anyway. And because we all have access to them and. The most amazing thing is that some of us don't realize we have that access. And so show the people, show everyone where their access to these amazing things is. And let's let's bring flow to the people. And I think that's you know part of why he didn't just write scholarly articles that get hidden behind paywalls written in you know scientific language that not everybody can read. He spent a lot of time writing the books because he really wanted everybody to be in on this. Democratizing flow. Yes. Why not? Well, as you know, my, my friend Stephen Kotler has uh, been uh, doing lots and lots of uh, trainings uh, in the general population on this topic. But um, I think that there's a lot more that can be done to democratize this topic. Um, I believe you have a company. Is that right? Aren't you working on this too? Uh, helping people practically, not, not just keeping it in the, in the journals. T tell people about your work on this. Sure. Uh, so first of all, I do have to say about Kotler, he's certainly practicing his own version of things. I'm not sure that his work fits in or aligns well with Mike's. Um, it's mm. his own version, and uh, I don't think it dovetails with Chicksetme High's work very well, but Mike didn't want to argue with people on this. There have been mm. various forms of the canon out there, but they're, they're not all the same. I run the Quality of Life Lab, and you know, so part of what I'm doing is I'm consulting and helping companies and also individuals finding ways to experience flow mostly at work, but I'm also looking at uh, something called interstitial time. It's like the, the time between times. How do we make the most of our time and using our time well? And this, uh, I, I love trains. This is the backstory in this. I love trains and I love riding trains. But the funny thing about you know riding trains is that you also have to wait for trains. Waiting for trains is annoying. <laughs> and you know when you when you're a commuter or when you have to commute. And you know I grew up outside of New York City. You know watched my dad commute into the city. My mom sometimes. So, you know, you got to sit there and wait for the train. And if the train is late, what do you do in that time? And so one of the questions that I came to Csikszentmihalyi with as a grad student is, in a very real sense, what's the optimal experience under suboptimal conditions? Nice. Nice. So what can we do when, we're, when we can't necessarily have a flow experience? Is there some kind of analog of it that we could actually experience? Could we have a microflow experience? That was something that... You know, Mike theorized a long time ago, like back in 75, he was talking about it, but nobody ever did anything with it. I picked it up. I was like, this is cool. So I've been looking at like how people can use their time and particularly use the time that comes between the major blocks in our day. So the hypothetical I like to give people is, you know, imagine you're going to meet somebody at five o'clock and they text you right at five o'clock to say, I'm running 10 minutes late. Now, what's the best way to use those 10 minutes? And can I actually do research? And can I actually prove to you that there's some kind of algorithm that you could use to figure out the best way to use those 10 minutes? So I'm, I'm spending a lot of time you know, looking into that and how we manage that. So far, some of the tips that I was pointing out for flow apply just as readily to microflow. You just have to keep in mind, you've only got 10 minutes. That's true. Yeah, no, that, that is really a really cool line of inquiry. Microflow. Micro who, who coined that sort of expression? Was that you? That was Mike, actually. Uh, he actually mentioned microflow in Beyond Boredom and Anxiety uh, in 1975. Oh, I see. Okay. But he never really touched it since then. And so, you know, me as a grad student, you know, picking this up going, you know, what's this? Because he didn't really do anything with it. He, I think he mentioned it like one more time in 2002 in, you know, a book chapter somewhere. And that was it. Well... Uh Color me curious. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's great that you, you, that's great that you picked that up. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite products that helps support my body and mind as I age. 
On the Psychology Podcast, we frequently talk about forms of wisdom and self-actualization that are often achieved in our 30s and 40s or even older. But it can be frustrating to finally know what you want out of life just as you start to lose the mental and physical energy to go get it. A culprit of decreasing energy, slower workout recovery, and general middle-aged symptoms that start showing up in our 30s is sentient cell accumulation. Sentient cells are sometimes called zombie cells because they're old, worn-out cells no longer doing their job in our bodies, but they linger on in us after we want them gone, wasting our energy and nutrition. Qualiosenolytic is an amazing formula made by Neurohacker Collective, a company I really trust. I've known the folks at Neurohacker Collective for years now, and they really are thoughtful about what they put into their products, always trying to be as science-informed as possible. Qualia Senolytic combines nine vegan, non-GMO, plant-derived ingredients that help your body eliminate sentient cells. Personally, it helps me operate with the wisdom of a 40-something with the mental and physical energy of a 20-something. The best part is you take Qualia Senolytic just two days a month. It's so easy and so helpful to the human aging process. To try Qualia Senolytic up to 50% off, backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, go to neurohacker.com and use code PSYCHPODCAST15 for an additional 15% off. That's Qualia Senolytic for better aging and prime energy deep into life at neurohacker.com slash psychpodcast slash psych15. What are some applications to Spark Team Flow? So there are a few. I think the main thing is, first of all, just getting to know people on the team. Like, what, what are they about? What are their motivations? And figuring out, like, what people have in common. Mm. Over and above, like, the goal of the team. Like, why are we all here? Mm. And I find that one of the biggest things is that teams don't actually ask that question, why are we here? Mm. And often teams also aren't deliberately created. And I think that one of the things that actually, even like, you know, pre-team getting together is, you know, is the team being deliberately created? And are we actually picking people that should be on the team for a reason? It's like, if you find yourself brought into the room for the team and you don't know why you were picked for the team, I mean, you're already off on the wrong foot. So you want to make sure that everybody knows why they're there and everybody believes that they've been deliberately picked to be there. I think that the ad hoc nature of the way, especially business teams, we see this a lot, like, well, we need warm bodies for this. So we're going to put all these people in a room or, you know, we need parallel processing or we need, you know, X number of hands. Mm. So we're going to put these people on the team. This is, this is a recipe for definitely not team flow, if not disaster. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So I think the biggest hack is making sure that everybody knows why they're there and then everybody's actually, you know, bought into why they were, why they're there and that they want to be there. Because the, you know, the, one of the most destructive things for a team is, you know, forcing somebody to be on it that doesn't want to be there. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. Okay, I think I think we can move on to hypnosis because I'm curious at what point in your career you got uh, interest in that topic, and and I, I want to know if there is a real science to it. I, I think that it has some criticism within the field of psychology. So I'd love you to set people straight on this. Sure. So I think the funniest thing is I got into hypnosis when I was six. Not kidding. <laughs> were you hypnotized some kids get into basketball some kids get into karate i saw this hypnosis thing i was like this is cool and believe it or not you know jewish culture does have a very strong emphasis on self-actualization and you know going to yeshiva was something that you know i heard a lot not always yeah. is the term self-actualization but that you know we're supposed to do our best to be our best to develop ourselves yeah. and i started to notice that hypnosis may be something useful for developing our best selves, that the trance, that the trance state, or at least you know, using using this tool, may turn out to be very helpful for us. Because I started noticing that under hypnosis, people seem to be able to do things that they couldn't seem to do otherwise. Now, I mean, remember, I'm six years old; I don't wow. really you know get all this very well. But I'm, I'm making these observations, and I'm like, okay, once again, color me curious. I, I want to know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, a lot of fumbling around, um, a lot of practicing and um, hypnotizing stuffed animals just to get, you know, my my flow down and to, you know, learn how to get this done. I mean, you had to practice on something. And, you know, thinking about it and, you know, coming up with wild, crazy theories for how this all might work, which was which was a lot of fun. And then, you know, as I as I got more into research, I got a little more serious about it. Um, but I also found that it was uh, very hard to do research on hypnosis. And I think, you know, as much as I'm a fan of hypnosis and hypnosis research, 
there are some critiques in the psychology community and they're not wrong either. Like what? What are the critiques? So one of them is that hypnosis is very hard to replicate. So, you know, when we're, especially in an era when we're talking about, you know, running studies that are replicable, Mm. it's often hard to create a hypnosis study that has good generalizability Mm. and that actually replicates. And, you know, even let's say across hypnotists or across contexts or something that's, you know, actually useful and practical. One of the main things that we found hypnosis to be good for is uh, relaxation. We found it's good for pain control and some really neat research, uh, like, you know, pretty much hot off the presses in the last few years on hypnosis being used for PTSD. Oh, wow. And well, also for, for mitigating some of the deleterious effects of cancer. That is so interesting. What, what is the uh, mechanism of hypnosis? So this is a good one. And to be honest with you, we don't know. Um, I, I generally joke that hypnosis is, is to even scientists the way a microwave is to most people. Most people don't know how a microwave works. You put <laughs> in the food, you hit the right buttons, and you, you, know, you know which buttons to hit, and then you know how to deal with what comes out. Most hypnotists, they're just operating a microwave. Like, they don't know how it works, but, you know, but we're experts at pressing the right buttons, putting, you know, the right things in, setting them up exactly just so, so that we, you know, so that things will come out in some kind of predictable fashion. Now, what we do know is that there's a great deal of absorption going on, that people are in a very absorbed, and I'm going to, I'm going to say state, I'm just going to point out there is some contention. Some people think it's not a state. Uh, the evidence is very quickly mounting toward the state side, especially as we get more neuroscience research done. So okay. I'm going to say state and put a and put an asterisk on it. Some people disagree, but we we definitely find that there's a state going on. We see heightened suggestibility, that is a greater willingness to turn ideas into realities. You know, this this sort of dovetails with some of the work that we've been seeing on imagination, the the ability to think as real and to you know actually even experience suggested perceptions. And so I, I kind of think of hypnosis as an amplifier more than anything else. It, wow. it helps it helps you focus, and then it helps amplify whatever it is that you choose to amplify. I mean, yes. f- funny little secret, but um, hypno but hypnotize the word hypnotize is actually not a transitive verb, right? The, like the statement "I hypnotized you" actually doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We have a rule in hypnosis, and it is all hypnosis is self hypnosis. So if I'm hypnotizing you, I'm not actually like doing something to you. I'm actually helping you do something to yourself. And as a hypnotist, what that means is that I'm really good at helping people do this and, you know, work through this process. You know, just as the same as any fitness coach, you know, you're the one doing the exercises. And it's as true mentally as it is physically. Like you're the one doing the exercises. I'm guiding you. I'm saying, okay, now try doing this. Try doing that. All right go do this, go do that. And then you're the one who actually has to do it. So there's, there's, you don't actually hypnotize other people. You enable or empower other people to go into a state of hypnosis, to experience hypnosis, and then to use it in ways that are effective for them. Yes, it may be true that you're the one doing it, but if you don't have a memory of doing it or awareness of doing it, that seems to me like uh, it is kind of operating without your permission to a certain degree though. Just to push back on that a second. Sure. Except that uh, the overwhelming majority of the time, people do remember it. Interesting. So, no, people remember it almost all the time. And um, unless, there's, unless there's a suggestion or some kind of, you know, in, or some kind of desire not to remember it, by default, people do remember what they did when they were hypnotized. The only reason why people think otherwise is that it makes for a great plot device. Um, most of the stuff you see on TV just isn't real. Isn't real, and it's just it's just a plot device to make you know to make things work. You know, a cute little pretense, but that's not the reality. One of my favorite magicians is the mentalist Darren Brown, and a lot of his work relies on uh, what he calls uh, <laughs> hypnosis. Um, I don't know the full extent to which he has been trained and 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 does it properly, but um, I've been to one of his shows and he hypnotized half of the audience. Um, but I, um, you know, he didn't hypnotize me uh, because I didn't want to be. And I wonder what extent uh, you really can resist it. Yeah, how much can you resist it? Fully. No That's- exceptions. 
Well, that's really, really interesting and important information. I'm glad I asked you that question. That is so interesting. As you, as you know, I am also a big fan of uh, the the construct of absorption, which you mentioned. Um, I've been thinking about writing a book about absorption. Uh, it's just a very understudied, very understudied area of psychology um, that is not exactly the same thing as flow. Intelligent deserves. I love giving credit where it's due. Um, Telogen, uh, Auk Telogen, uh, is uh, the one who really put that on the map in the psychological literature, but there are unfortunately not too many studies on that. But the studies that I, I've done on, on it ha has shown it's quite intertwined tightly with creativity and with the, uh, with the creative experience. So anyway, I think that's neat. Take that for what, for what you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, Scott, I, I definitely agree with you on this. And funnily enough, when you told me, uh, you know, we, we've been emailing and you we know, have. when you told me you were going to be writing a book on absorption, like I can tell you, like I had a kid in a candy store moment. I was so excited because mm. I think you and I actually came to this conclusion independent. I was like, all right, I'm not so crazy for thinking that absorption is going to be one of the keys to high performance and doing your best and, you know, getting to self-actualization is kind of what got me into hypnosis in the first place. Is I was like, all right, I, I, I feel seen. Absolutely. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a really uh, dynamite trait that is just not uh, as heavily studied in the field. Um, and, and even flow is not heavily studied in the field. I mean, there are a handful of psychologists such as yourself and Gene, right? Uh, tell us about Gene's work. So Gene Nakamura is doing a lot of work on the personal aspects of flow, like let's say the autotelic personality and whether, and the autotelic personality is uh, basically looking at flow proneness, like to what extent are you more or less likely to be the kind of person that experiences flow either more deeply or more frequently. And I mean, G uh, Gene is very much a developmental psychologist. So she's looking at that. She's looking at mentoring. She's looking at flow across the lifespan and to what extent you know, we, they, that positive development may contribute to greater flow proneness or to the extent to which flow may contribute to positive development and you know, well-being, especially in adulthood. Wow. Yeah. I am so excited to announce that registrations are now open for our self-actualization coaching intensive. While the coaching industry has taken great strides over the years toward integrating more evidence-based coaching approaches, there's still a lot of work to be done. Many coach training programs still lack strong foundations in science and do little to incorporate research-informed tools, methodologies, or approaches for helping clients thrive. For 20 years, I've dedicated my career to rigorously testing ways to unlock creativity, intelligence, and our potential as human beings. Now, for the first time ever, I have compiled some of my greatest insights to bring the new science of self-actualization to the field of professional coaching. This immersive three-day learning experience will introduce you to self-actualization coaching, an approach intended to enhance your coaching practice by offering you evidence-based tools and insights from my research that will equip you to more effectively help your clients unlock their unique potential. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Join us and take your coaching practice to the next level. Go to sacoaching.org. That's sacoaching.org. I look forward to welcoming you in December that link to well-being is, is, is huge. Uh, and well, then maybe that's a nice segue to the field of the, a discussion of the field of positive psychology because flow and uh, is a big concept in, in positive psychology. And was Mike, your advisor, one of the founders of the field along with Martin, with Martin Sogman? I always argue that Maslow was more the founder of the field. Oh, I would, I agree. I agree. But uh, modern day, let's call it modern day positive psychology. It was, uh, what's the origin story? Marty Seligman uh, had lunch or dinner at a restaurant with Mike in, in 1996 or something. And then it was born there. They were talking all night or something about it. I think that uh, Marty and Mike uh, had a lot of great discussions, but Chris Peterson was also uh, a blessed uh, yeah. memory, was also very heavily involved in this. And I think that, you know, it was Marty, Mike, and Chris. And I know that, you know, Marty and Mike did a lot of things, but I mean, these are, these are three, I, I don't know if you've met, have you ever met Chris Peterson? A week, a week before he died. Oh, wow. A uh, really great guy. I met him only once or twice, had some discussions with him I, I, and I immediately thought he was awesome. But um, I think three very different personalities 
And so they, they each added different things to the field. And I think, you know, as much as, so Marty, I think, was looking at, you know, Maslavian, Maslavian works and the work of humanistic psychology and realized that we really needed to put, there's a lot of pun on this, a positivist spin on the whole thing <laughs> yeah. uh, to make it more empirical and to extend it into something that could be more readily researched than, you know, a lot of the clinical work that, albeit inspiring and wonderful and very powerful, we'd like to actually get some some harder science underpinning it and really exploring what's what's actually going on. And Seligman, I think, was really trying to move the fields in that direction and to create you know, more research on that. And so that, you know, led to his APA address, but it was something that Csikszentmihalyi and Peterson both also agreed with. And they started talking about, you know, what a positive psychology would look like. And I think that, you know, each of them brought different pieces to this field. And I think Seligman absolutely brought the leadership and the vision and, you know, really the overarching view of how it would go. But then, you know, Csikszentmihalyi, Peterson, I think Csikszentmihalyi was uh, very much, you know, making sure that this gets distributed, not just to the scientists, uh, but to the people, and also making sure that, you know, everything was founded in solid developmental psych principles. I think, you know, Seligman was more of an abnormal psychologist, cognitive psychologist. Csikszentmihalyi was a developmental psychologist. So really looking at, you know, positive psychology throughout the lifetime. And uh, I, I admit that I don't recall Peterson's specialty. But it might have been might have been developmental cognitive also some or, or even clinical something along I those wanna, lines. Yeah, I want to say personality psychology. No, I don't know. Yeah, or, or social. You might be right. Again, yeah. I, Peterson's yeah. the one I knew the least well. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. But one well, amazing guy. I think you know one of his one of his best lines that I think everybody just keeps quoting Peterson as saying is, "Other people matter." Correct. Correct. And I think that he really brought a lot into psychology with that. I agree. <laughs> I agree, and I love that. Um, what is your criticism of, of, of positive psychology? So per se, I don't have that much criticism of it. What I, where I start to have the criticisms is where people take it into pop psychology directions and where people conflate um, vision, theory, and practice. And so when I look at a lot of Seligman's work, I see it as theory. I don't see it as, and, and I see it mostly as vision, like the PERMA, like the PERMA thing. Um, I don't think that's empirical, and I've looked at it. I, I, that's not so much empirical as much as it is vision. Like, let's look at these six things, and let's you know get an understanding of how they work, how they may work together. These are clearly going to be important details, so let's do research on them. So much as you know, using that as a as a clear metric of well being, I don't think um, I don't. I, I'm not sure that that's really where it was all supposed to go. As much, you know, I don't think these theories or these visions were meant to come down into like checklists, hmm. you know, much in the way I think the self-determination theory, you know, DC and Ryan's work on self-determination yes. theory, I don't think it was really meant to be brought down to checklists of like, you know, you got this, got this, got this, got <laughs> I this. Agree. I mean, yes, you need autonomy, competence and relatedness, but don't treat this like a checklist. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, that That's a really great point. Let's end this interview talking a little bit more generally and broadly about self-actualization and transcendence. I know that you're looking into this. I'd love to hear your own conceptualization of the difference between self-actualization and transcendence and uh, and what the algorithm for for them would be. Uh, what, what would be the concrete steps people should take um, and the questions they should be asking themselves on the route to both of these things? Sure. So I think that self-actualization is an upward spiral in which we are going through the process of understanding our potential and then fulfilling that potential, which opens up new potential that we then you know, go around and do again, you know, developing upward and upward. And then through that, I think that we develop a uniqueness mm. and a way to contribute to the world that goes beyond ourselves and lasts beyond ourselves. And that to me is the self-transcendent aspect. Mm. And that, so to me, you know, self-actualization is developing and making your uniqueness real and more effective and, you know, applicable to the world. And then, you know, you bring it out there, you create something. And I do believe it's definitely related to creativity as Maslow did, mm. that, that you create something, you put it out in the world and this thing stays in the world and is outside of you, it goes beyond you. And yes. I think that that self-actualization, once again, it's one of those, uh, in, uh, self-transcendence rather, it's one of those ineffable things that when we put something out in the world that we know is our unique stamp that lasts 
you know, beyond our lifetimes even that we know that we've achieved something worthwhile. And once again, that's something that everybody can do. And it's something I really do want to see for everyone. And so, you know, along those lines, I am looking for the algorithm to it. Now, am I actually going to find it? Good luck. But what I would say is, you know, even if I make some progress in my lifetime, I think that that's, that's worth something. And one of the things that I found, you know, early on in my work, and I've been developing and trying to understand is that Socrates was absolutely right in that uh, whole Temet Noske thing. Um, and obviously he said it in Greek, which I don't know as well, but know thyself. And we actually don't take the time to get to know ourselves. And I've been finding over and over and over again in my time as a college professor, as a coach, as a consultant in companies, we really haven't gotten the chance to shake hands with ourselves and, uh, have, an, and have a little sit down. Uh, we really don't get to know ourselves that well. And we spend so much of our time trying to contort ourselves in so that we fit into the world around us that we sometimes don't think about who we are, what we're about, and whether that contortion is a good idea. And you know what? Sometimes it is, but we don't always make that a deliberate choice on our part. And I think we can. I think we should. If we're going to, if we're going to shift ourselves, if we're going to try and mold ourselves to our environment, and in a sense, we do have to, right? We can't just, we can't just be 100% ourselves and impose ourselves on the world. You know, we interact with the world, the world interacts with us. But I, I think that we can do it much more deliberately than we are doing it. And so one of the things I've been telling people, like, you know, the first thing, if you don't know yourself or you're not sure you know yourself, is get to know your preferences. And when I say preferences, I'm talking about, in some cases, the little things. You know, what's your favorite color? And just for a funny exercise, it is shocking to me how many people you just go up to them and you say, what's your favorite color? And you get a moment like, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, blue, no, yellow, or something along those lines. People don't actually know their favorite color. <laughs> people don't always know their food tastes or their hobbies. Yes, people, what are your hobbies? Uh, now, they have hobbies. Of course they do. But they don't always think about it. And they don't really know what gets them going or what gets them excited. You know, those autotelic activities, the things that they love to do for their own sake, they actually don't know what they are sometimes. And so I invite people to get to know themselves, to find out, you know, what foods do you like? What colors do you like? What music do you like? And start looking for some patterns. And I think that that's a great place for anyone to start. And I, I find it actually somewhat surprising that when I ask people to start on this, um, they actually struggle with this exercise. Like, you know, what music do you like? I don't know. I, I kind of like everything. You you have certain preferences, you know, this or that. And if you have to do A-B testing with yourself, like, do I like A, more, a or B more? I mean, go ahead and do that. Go play with your, go play with your playlist and see what's there. What are, what are the songs that, you know, you need at different times? What are the foods that you want at different times? What are the comfort foods? What are, you know, what are the interesting foods? What do you like to make? Um, what colors do you like to see? What art do you like to see in the world? What do you like to wear? Each of these, you know, random little things and people say, well, then what do you do? For one thing, just start by doing that. And I think that that opens up other doors because then you start to ask yourself questions like, why do I like that? You know, why do I like these foods and not those foods? Why do I like this music and not that music? Why do I like this music at these times? And in the process, you start to actually get to know your own psychology. You start to see your own motivations. You start to see the values that drive you. And another thing that you can do is sort of ask yourself, like, what difference do you want to make in the world? What about the world do you either, it's one of two things, either what about the world do you love so much that you want everybody to have it? Or what in the world do you hate so much that you want to get rid of it and, you know, keep it away from people? Nice. And I think through exploring that, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a long conversation with yourself, but I think that when we do have that conversation with ourselves, we come to some really incredible moments and we understand our values. We start at least to understand our value system and we understand what kind of trade-offs we want to make to make our mark on the world, to find out like what is our uniqueness. And that's really what a lot of this is going for is coming up with what our uniqueness is. And then we get to think about, you know, the way the world is and how we want to shape the world. And that's how we want to use that uniqueness in the world. And then we self-transcend and, suddenly this universe is a much richer place for the fact of our, our bit of dust and ashes having been on it. Yeah, well, at least planet Earth, as I see the images of, of the deep 
universe. I, I wonder what extent we're impacting any of that. But your point is very well taken, my friend. Thank you so much, Oren, for being on my podcast today and for the work you've done for the field. Very much a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> my pleasure, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening.